There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 38, Christianizing. Thank you all for being so patient during my hiatus. Research, as well as life, got in the way. Last time, we looked at changes in the army up to the end of the 6th century, through the helpful eyes of the author of the Strategicon. Today, we will be looking at the deepening Christianization of the Byzantine world. Within the narrative of the podcast, we saw some of these changes, such as the growing Monophysite disputes and Justinian's aggressive legislation to encourage orthodox behavior. But on the slow, transformative journey from the classical pagan world to the medieval Christian one, several important milestones can be spotted during the 6th century. The first thing to point out is that by 600, it had become much harder not to be a Christian. Back in 500, there were still many people living out in the countryside, particularly in Anatolia, who were practicing their ancestral traditions rather than going to church. Meanwhile, in the cities, we still had plenty of surviving literature from upper-class pagans who were resisting the encroachment of Jesus Christ. By the year 600, both these groups were dwindling fast. Christianity had always spread quickest in the empire's cities. The message of the gospel was often spread by excited converts, and the new communities they created were easier to sustain in a city where the congregation could gather easily in one place. Out in the countryside, people were more able to ignore the new craze sweeping the world and stick to the local cults and shrines which had helped their families through good times and bad for as long as anyone could remember. Attempts to bring these people into the Christian fold increased during the 6th century. Missionary activity was an ongoing effort, often with imperial sponsorship, as indeed was a program of church building which meant even the most inaccessible places were now furnished with a house of God. 
the battle between the Orthodox and the Monophysites seems to have helped encourage zealots on both sides to seek new recruits amongst the uninitiated. Of course, just because many were converting doesn't mean that they were yet full-blooded Christians, nor that many pagan practices were either maintained or dressed in Christian clothing in order to survive. Within the narrative, we saw Justinian use his new law books to further attack the legal and social standing of non-Christians, which doubtless aided many surface conversions. And more famously, he banned pagans from teaching, which didn't actually stop them in their tracks, but certainly shut the door on that profession as a respectable home for those who didn't like the prevailing beliefs of the time. Educated men still read the classics and discussed philosophy, and training in rhetoric was essential to landing a job in the imperial bureaucracy. However, by 600, the texts being written are either by Christians, for Christians, or on Christian topics. Despite his critique of Justinian's religious policies, Procopius identified himself as a Christian and wrote his histories with a Christian audience in mind. A new popular literary genre was hagiography, Those were biographies of saints, martyrs, or other holy men. Tales of their miraculous feats on behalf of the one true God were very much enjoyed by those who read. It's probable that the 6th century saw a drop in the rates of literacy across the empire. It's a broad generalization, but with a new class of Christian priest emerging who could read and explain scripture to the public, it was perhaps no longer considered as important to educate your children particularly given the pagan content of the syllabus. Incidental evidence for this comes from the Strategicon, where the author does not assume that the commanders of legions will be able to read. Of course, the life of a soldier didn't always require that ability, and many cavalry officers were of barbarian origin anyway. And it's worth saying that there wasn't a concerted attack on pagan learning by the Christian mainstream. We do hear of zealous believers monks in particular, who made the case that all non-biblical texts could be done away with. But they were the minority. The elite still loved the classics and emulated the beautiful Greek they were written in. New universities did flourish as well, although they were self-consciously Christian organisations, particularly those in Constantinople and at Gaza. The growth in the number and the power of the clergy is one of the other major changes during this era. Allied to the building of new churches across the empire, the number of men in service of the church expanded too. Several times during the narrative, we came across the growing power of the empire's bishops. From an early stage, the Christian church was an organized affair, mirroring the structure of the Roman Empire with archbishops or patriarchs acting like praetorian prefects and the bishops beneath them functioning like provincial governors. The local bishop of a town or city was now a very important man in his community. Not only was he the spiritual leader of local religious life, but he was also rich and powerful. Rich because the church was a major landowner, thanks to the continuing donations from the faithful. Many would leave not only their wealth, but their land to the church, and so local bishops could often be expected to take charge of quite large estates, all the while enjoying exemption from most taxes. 
From this, the bishops would provide welfare to the poor, the needy, and the widowed, but many built nice houses for themselves as well. And powerful, because the bishops were now asked to adjudicate legal disputes and commission new building projects when local infrastructure was lacking. The bishops have now absorbed much of the wealth and influence that local elites would once have held. That change in the local distribution of power and responsibility is one of the major milestones which we observe from this century. In fact, in some history books, you may read about the decline of the cities. As you already know, Mediterranean civilization had long been defined by the city. The Greek ideal of the city-state still held great sway, even in the 6th century. The city was where civilized men would congregate to make decisions together, to socialize, to educate their young people, and to win honor and prestige through political advancement or the sponsorship of local construction. Now, of course, the ideal of political independence and sovereignty for the individual city had long since given way to the primacy of the Roman Empire. But the city still was seen as the building block of that empire. Justinian founded many cities and certainly spent hundreds of pounds of gold improving the existing ones. However, the classical style city, which Justinian attempted to restore, had long been evolving into something else. Many of the buildings which had made up the classical city were now obsolete. First to go were the pagan temples, obviously, followed by the gladiatorial amphitheatres, which were incompatible with Christian ethics. The theatres were next to decline, as cultural energy was spent on theology rather than moral philosophy. After that, the baths came under threat. It took far longer for the passion for bathing to wear off, but the clergy were always disapproving of public nudity, and large bathhouses were expensive operations. In an empire constantly raided by Slavs, Avars, Arabs and Persians, and bubonic plague, it became increasingly difficult to keep large infrastructure working without imperial support. And that last part is key. If the bishop didn't want to fund the baths, then the local elites would have to. But for centuries now, they had been abandoning their traditional responsibilities. As I mentioned back in the walking tour at the end of the 5th century, the flight of the curial class had long been an issue for imperial administrators. The curiales were essentially the local council of a city, a group of wealthy people who would pay for the upkeep of their city. Out of their own pockets, they would repair buildings, construct new ones, look after the water supply, provide barracks for local army units, and help collect the taxes. In a world where men took great pride in attaching their name to local construction, this system worked. But as we saw through the crisis of the 3rd century onwards, local men had begun to realise that this was an expensive obligation with very little prestige. The rich retired to their estates and bribed their way out of their obligations, while the ambitious and the smart made their way into the imperial bureaucracy, the army, or the church. 
The men with the money were now the bishops, and so the classical buildings began to disappear in favour of new churches. The churches brought people together in one place, and so businesses adapted to this new hub of activity. Classical ideals of grid patterns and tidy streets were abandoned, as people constructed shops amongst the colonnades and built houses there too. As elites began to prefer their country villa, the large peristyle houses in the cities gave way to subdivision so that the space could be used more equally. Slowly but surely, the classical city was giving way to the crowded medieval street. This cultural change was complemented by the increasing insecurity of the empire's borders. Again, the crisis of the 3rd century was the catalyst for every vulnerable city to build circuit walls, which inevitably made it hard to justify large public buildings within limited space. In their place, and often built amongst the ruins of the old construction, kilns, olive presses, metal workshops, and graveyards begin to appear, while storehouses for food and weaponry along with office space for the clergy, were also needed. The reason the decline of cities is a theme often traced to the 6th century is because the cities took such a kicking in our narrative. Thessalonica aside, there were no more large cities left in the Balkans. The endless raids from the Huns, the Goths, the Slavs, the Bulgars and the Avars meant the cities which remained were those perched on defensible hilltops or otherwise inaccessible locations. It seems that by 600 AD, Sparta, Corinth and Argos, amongst other famous cities, were no longer large settlements. Meanwhile, bubonic plague loved the damp, well-populated streets of cities more than anywhere else, wiping out decades of population growth. And, of course, Justinian's wars had seen Milan, Rome, Antioch, and many smaller cities either sacked, depopulated, or ruined. With even greater wars on the way, the era of the Greco-Roman city is certainly coming to an end. However, it's important not to succumb to a classical bias and see this as civilizational decline. Many cities in the East would go on to flourish under Muslim rule, and even if they were smaller and less impressive looking, the empire would always need cities as vital centres of exchange, authority and defence. And the culture which remained in those cities was doubtless just as vibrant and full of life as any that came before. Church services, street performers, trade fairs and religious processions were just the new flavour of urban existence. What I've just given you is of course a generalised survey. It's important to remember that urban change came at different times to different places to different extents. Along with churches dotting the countryside, the other physical change in rural areas was the growth of monasteries. Although they continued to grow during the 6th century, they were not ubiquitous enough to make a significant change to the scenery, but a local monastery could change a specific community by providing another point of local exchange and worship. Along with pagans, the other major non-Christian group in the empire 
were the Jews and Samaritans. During the narrative, I briefly mentioned two Samaritan uprisings which took place during Justinian's reign, which he brutally put down. Such was the ferocity of the imperial response that the Samaritans ceased to be of political significance after the 6th century. The empire's Jews were far more numerous, but they were not part of any significant rebellion during the century. Listener J asked, what was life like for the average Jewish person in the Byzantine Empire during this period? And it's a very good question, because as the empire became more self-consciously Christian, the Jews would begin to stand out, perhaps even more than they had done under the pagan empire. The problem is, though, we have no written accounts by Byzantine Jews from the 6th century of what life was like. We have to piece it together from other sources. Certainly, imperial legislation had turned against the Jews long before this time. It was Theodosius who prohibited the building of new synagogues or major repairs to old ones, and Jews were not welcome in imperial service even before Justinian tightened the laws to more formally place Jews in the class of pagans and heretics. Jews were abused and persecuted during this time. Justinian tried to tell them when they could celebrate Passover and in what language they could read their scriptures. We hear from Procopius of African Jews who were forced to convert and had their synagogues turned into a church. And there are several surviving Christian polemics where presumably fictional stories have Jews being converted of their own free will to Christianity when they realize the foolishness of their beliefs. However, to counterbalance this picture, we have much evidence of Jewish life going on as it had done before. Archaeological finds suggest that Jewish communities went on building new synagogues when they needed them all over the empire, and large groups continued to live in the same cities and the same locations as they had done for centuries, including in Palestine, with a major centre of devotion based around Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. The Chalco Prater was the Jewish district in Constantinople with its own synagogue, and we read nothing of attempts to do away with it. In fact, in Christian accusations that the Jews were involved with various acts of sedition, including the Samaritan revolts, is the implication that Jewish communities continued their existence without much interruption. What historians guess from this is that many people maintained the basic tolerance which had always existed between Jews and Romans since the first century. Local administrators probably didn't go to much effort to enforce anti-Jewish laws as long as the taxes were paid and the peace was kept. However, I think we'd have to conclude that the Christianizing of the empire marginalized the Jews even more and probably increased casual racism, as we might call it, toward them. If Jews were no longer welcome in service of the empire, then it was unlikely that either side was going to feel bonded to the other when times became tough. We'll end things there for today. We've only covered the broad outlines of cultural change as Byzantium became more Christian, but hopefully it's given you an idea of how the world was adapting day to day. 
next week, we move on to a quick tour of the Empire's neighbours and provinces to pick out some interesting details and answer some more of your questions. Again, thank you for your support and do get in touch on Facebook at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on Twitter at thetvcriticorg. And if you're looking for more history podcasts, then why not visit historypodcasters.com or join the History Podcasts Facebook group to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.